Hello everybody, I hope that you're all doing well. Well here we go again with another week of amazing and scary stories, curated perfectly for you. I hope that you enjoy them. Let's get into it, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I met a strange man who lives deep in the forest. Written by Girl from the Crypt. When I was 11, I started taking singing lessons. I had wanted to for a long time, but my parents had never been able to afford them. Thankfully, I would end up receiving them for free when I met Mr. Vespers. My childhood home was located on the outskirts of a larger town, where houses were few and far between, surrounded by intermittently dense woodland. We had a garden where I could often be found entertaining my younger siblings. I didn't have many friends at school, so I was basically always at home. I got on okay with my little brother and sister so often that I had to play the babysitter when my parents needed some time off. Ironically, they trusted me to take care of them over my older sister. I was just doing that when Mr. Vespers first happened upon me. The aforementioned younger siblings, Viola and Reed, were really giving me the runaround that day. Viola had somehow managed to climb atop our swing set and was refusing to come back down. She laughed and kicked her little legs, skillfully wrapped around the wooden bar from which the chains connecting to the swing seats hung. I didn't care to compliment her on it. All I could think of was how much trouble I would get into if she fell down and got hurt. Soon enough she realized that she was in a position of great power up there. Hey Sheer, I'll come down if you do a handstand, she hollered. I did clumsily and while this seemed to please her, she still wouldn't climb off. Now do a cartwheel. I tried and failed. Reed, who was sitting beside us on the blue roof of his little white playhouse, clapped nonetheless. Now sing, loud, Viola ordered. Knowing that there was no disobeying her, I filled my lungs with air and began. There's this one old song that she hated because it made her terribly sad, so I chose to sing that. I hoped that it would lead to her getting tired of her nonsense, but instead, she started crying right there on top of the structure. I was on the brink of despair and considering where to get a ladder from, when suddenly I heard the gate and the fence swing open and footsteps drawing closer. Upon turning around, I found a complete stranger approaching us. He was a bit taller than Dad and wore a pristine camel hair coat. His face was framed by sleek brown hair and a cropped beard. He looked like a pop star, but fancier. The unannounced entrance of a man that I had never seen before should have certainly given me a start, but something about him put me right at ease. Sure, he had ventured onto our property without even asking first, but how could I be alarmed when the look on his face was so gentle? Hey, sir, I said. If you're here to see my parents, they're not home. Yeah, I know. I was a pretty stupid kid. Oh, I don't know your parents, I told it. His voice was deep, rich, and smooth, with all the resonance of a thunderclap. It was nearly enough to help me ignore the borderline insult that he had just thrown at me. Toadlet, 
I bit the inside of my cheek. Do you need help with the noisy one? He stepped right up to the swing set, grabbed Viola and cautiously removed her from the bar before whirling her around once, causing a smile to reappear on her face. And then he lowered her safely back to the ground. Thanks, sir, I said. Quite the climber, the stranger remarked. Not the only one in the family with talent, though, apparently. Toadlet, I came because of the musical performance that you gave earlier. I heard you when I was walking by. Your voice is heavenly. What? Nah, I paused. Really? I so swear, he says solemnly. Can I hear it again? After awkwardly clearing my throat, I meekly pressed out a few more lines of the same song as before. Viola promptly started to cry again. The stranger's smile grew, genuine warmth filling his eyes. It's wobbly, of course, and a tad brittle there at the end, but all in all, wonderfully harmonious. Sometimes voices still change during a child's transition to adulthood. I hope yours won't. It's perfect. I seldomly received praise, so this made my heart skip a beat. I could teach you. My name's Brio Vespers, by the way. I'm Sheer, and we can't afford lessons, I told him honestly. It would be free. How do you like the opera? Because that's my trade. My, you're disappointed now, I understand. I can't imagine a little kid like you being fond of the more classical side of music. Not really. I've only seen them on TV, though. But maybe they're cooler in person, I offered. Mr. Vespers grinned, or when you're the one singing them. Besides, I could teach you all sorts of other songs. That would be kind of cool. I admitted, heat creeping into my cheeks. I didn't quite trust him, though. Despite the odd feeling of safety that he somehow conveyed, I wasn't completely blind to how sketchy this was. You're going to have to talk to my parents. What are they due to be back? An hour or two, I shrugged. I guess you can wait here. I'm in no hurry, Mr. Vesper said agreeably. You should sing, Reed piped up. You are a real singer, no? I want to hear. Operatic bass, yes, the stranger confirmed steadily. Reed obviously had no clue what that was, but he started clapping wildly nonetheless. I believe that even Mr. Vespers found it charming, as he indeed began to sing. It was in another language, and even though I couldn't understand it, each word that left his lips shook me to the core. His voice seemed to vibrate and tremble. I imagined that he could have made the ground shudder beneath our feet if he wanted to. Viola started crying harder. Reed was still clapping, only slower. Mr. Vespers finished with a little bow. Reed yelled for an encore while Viola ran to hide in the playhouse. Ignore her, that was awesome. Oh, I don't blame her, Toadlet. I can be awfully frightening. There was a twinkle in his eyes that I couldn't quite interpret. He wound up perching atop Reed's playhouse and partook in our plane, pretending to be a dragon, hissing and roaring at these squeaking children from up above. When my parents returned from their day out, they were more than a little confused. But still it seemed that Mr. Vesper's uncannily soothing aura was working on them as well. 
What would those lessons look like? Dad asked as we were later sitting together in the living room. He was holding the business card that Mr. Vespers had handed to him, not actually reading it. Would you teach her here at home? I absolutely could, if that works best for her. I meant could you take her somewhere else, because I really don't want that noise around here. Dad interrupted him. Mr. Vespers frowned. No problem. Then you're doing this for free. What are you getting from it? I'm a kind soul who appreciates talent. The singer replied without hesitation, a lion's grin curling in his lips. Besides, if your daughter were to make a career off of her voice, that would be beneficial to me as well. I guess it's fine then. I'm going to get her out of our hair for a bit at least. You're awfully kind, Mom agreed, casting a sparkly-eyed gaze at an uneasily squirming Mr. Vespers. And you're really a professional. If you didn't think I was, wouldn't you have thrown me out by now? My parents exchanged puzzled glances. What do you mean? Never mind. From that day on, Mr. Vespers became a firm constant in my life. He would pay us house calls every other day. Sometimes he would take me on field trips to the opera or the ballet, though an interest in these plays on my end was only ever feigned. It was kind of nice, though, sitting side by side with this odd fellow, who despite his eccentric nature and brusque ways seemed to somehow care about me. He paid for my tickets, intermission snacks, and post-show meals of my choosing, trying so hard to excite me for the plot and the history of works, such as Tasca, Diwakia, and La Travita. To me, they were all either dreadfully boring or depressingly dark, and it didn't help that the screens on which these subtitles were shown sometimes merely displayed the Windows error message. His biggest success on that front was to get me semi-excited over Di Zabafloat. I told him the music was sort of catchy and he was smiling over at that all night. I think the cheerful fantasy plays are better. I explained to him across the dirty McDonald's table that we were sitting at for our traditional dinner that night. I love fairy tales, so I appreciate a bit of magic. Plus, all the others are just so sad. I want something, something. I fumbled for words. Life-affirming. Mr. Vespers offered and I nodded eagerly. Well, he went on. That's an understandable preference, but all things considered, aren't you kind of drawn to dark themes? I mean, sometimes. I guess I like creepy myths and horror stories, but no sad stuff. I'm told that to please close your mouth when you're chewing. I'm a patient man and I can wait for your answer till you've swallowed. He pulled a face. Anyways, it's good that you're such a mirthful soul, but it's also quite surprising. I mean, your parents clearly don't care all that much about you. You're constantly being burdened with the responsibility of caring for your baby siblings. They're not babies. I contradicted him. And mom and dad do care. They just don't show it sometimes. It's okay, though. They have a lot of work on their hands because of us. And if you ask me, it's still their work and not yours. He fell silent, tilting his head at me. A forced smile curved his lips. Uh, never mind. Eat your garbage. Sometimes when we're walking side by side, I would puff my chest, lift my head and pretend that I belonged with him. I would call him dad in my head, 
Sure, he was always a bit condescending. His nickname for me stuck, even though I had told him a dozen times to drop it. His confidence in my skills is patient with me. I felt more validated by that than by any decent grade at school. God, I wish that he were my family, and I think that he could tell. Of course, we weren't always out and about. When we actually had practiced our singing, we did it in the woods of all places. At first, this rather confused me, and I was hesitant to follow him each time that he tried to lead me past the tree line. Now I know how this sounds, and no, nothing like that ever happened. Mr. Vespers never did anything to make me feel uncomfortable. He understood my concerns, and thus, we stayed around the forest edge in the beginning. I didn't get why the woods were so important to him anyways. He attempted to explain it to me multiple times, but it was always so weird and cryptic. Something about the trees and needing to hear us. I would find out soon enough though. The day that I followed him into the woods for the first time would go down as one of the weirdest and most wonderful of my entire life. Can you feel how everything here responds to you? Mr. Vespers asked, voice husky with excitement. These are my woods, never forget that. What do you mean your woods? He let out a soft chuckle, and then he set his voice singing. A light ballad that lingered in the air with a soft reverence that I hadn't thought his dark tones to be capable of. To my utter bewilderment, the branches of the trees around us started bending down, fanning out as if trying to get closer to him, to touch him. The flowers suddenly sprung from the ground where he stopped. The grass stretched to reach him and vines slithered down their respective tree trunks in greeting. I was dumbstruck. I followed him until we reached a sunny little grove where he discarded his coat and placed it on the ground for us to sit on. The soil would never stain my belongings, Mr. Vespers explained casually, like that was what I had been wondering about. What is this place? Why you've known it for a while, haven't you? Your house isn't far from here. Yes, but I couldn't find the right words. Mr. Vespers seemed rather pleased with my reaction. These are my woods, I told it. I keep them alive. I make them grow. With your voice? He nodded, his eyes sparkling. So what are you? This isn't exactly normal, is it? I asked, trailing my fingertips along the soft material of the coat. I was too nervous to meet his gaze. Our normal familiarity mixed with the primal fear of a soft, vulnerable child and the presence of a force beyond understanding. Every fiber of my being told me to run, but Mr. Vesper's fatherly gaze gently asked me to stay. It's not normal, no, he chuckled. And as for what I am, I'm human enough to walk and work among you, so that's all you really need to know. Are you afraid of me now, Toadlet? Yes, I admitted. But you know that I would never hurt you, right? This is still a lot. I understand, and I have to make another little confession. Where I'm from, we love artists, especially aspiring ones such as yourself. We want to bless you, we want to see you thrive. Look at me, Sheer. Do you see now? I whip my head up and it suddenly made sense. So much about him made sense now. 
his pacifying aura, his sharp tongue, his mesmerizing voice. I felt a thrill unlike any other. This is what my love for the unusual and the mythical had amounted to. You're a... Mr. Vespers interrupted me by quickly laying a finger on my lips. Affair. Shush, he hissed, pressing his fingers in a little harder. There was a mirthful smirk tugging on his face, though. Don't you say it. For some reason, I started giggling a lot. This made Mr. Vespers laugh, too. Don't you say it, you hear. Why not? I gritted out. It's so cool. Sure, you little freak. He snickered, finally removing his hand. So you're not afraid anymore, huh? No, I answered steadily. Still want me to teach you? Absolutely. So that's how we carried on. I soon learned not to prod my teacher with too many questions about his nature. We actually avoided the topic a lot of the time. It went unspoken but never forgotten. He taught me to sing to flowers, to motivate bugs and birds to dance along and make vines and branches bend my way. Most of the time, he only practiced simple songs and ballads that didn't require too much of a range. I just couldn't pull off the areas that he tried to reach me. My favorites were the lullabies, though. Oh, I know, a little underwhelming, but they always came easy to me. To practice them, Mr. Vespers would fetch us a bunny, and I would have to sing it to sleep. That was quite difficult in the beginning. Mr. Vespers and I sometimes sang duets. My voice, being generally high in pitch, mingled beautifully with his booming, rich bass. Those were the good years. Mr. Vespers soon offered to call him Brio. I think by then he knew how important he had become to me. He indulged me, in fact. He would even comfort me whenever somebody made fun of me at school. And that happened quite a lot, seeing as I was always the ugly duckling. Yup, they say that you grow out of it, but I didn't. I still look like a whole mess. Brio said that it didn't matter. Shire, you have an angel's voice and you can't have one's looks too. That would just be unfair. He would always tell me in that winning way of his. And that was all it took for me to cheer up. His was the only opinion that really mattered. As long as he was pleased with me, then so was I. Life was good and it remained that way until the day of the concert. When Brio had asked me to sing in front of some of his friends, I was flattered. He had sort of let on that the people listening wouldn't be normal. I assured him that I would be on my best behavior and he said that he knew. The concert was in the woods on a lovely afternoon in early fall. The leaves had already started to turn brown but the air was still pleasantly warm and rich with the scent of dewy grass and flowers. When Brio led me to the location of the concert that day, the audience had already arrived. Six people were lounging in the shade cast by the tall trees around us. They greeted Brio with hugs and handshakes and examined me in the same interest that an entomologist might regard a newly discovered bug with. So you're the little lady that we've been hearing so much about. A remarkably tall and pale woman said as she gently took my hand in hers. What's your name, sweetheart? I was about to respond when Brio cut me off. You may call her Toadlet, like I do. She has no obligations towards you. You don't need to know her name. The woman smiled frostily. 
I have no ill intentions towards the child. I believe you, but I'm afraid that I must insist. Brio replied with a strained grin, bending down to whisper into my ear that he told me, I'm just being careful, no need to worry. I thought they were your friends. Why do you need to be careful? I asked in a low voice. The concept of friendship is flexible where I come from. Still, you don't have to be alarmed. Just sing and give it your all. We had prepared several pieces for this esteemed crowd, among them the ballad of Tam Lin, El Kunig, which by the way was what Rio had sung the first time that we had met, though my rendition of it was hardly comparable, and green sleeves. They were incredibly well received, but more than any of the applause, I appreciated how my teacher was beaming with pride. Well, he asked loudly, turning to face the audience with a smug grin. Is she all that I talked her up to be or what? She certainly is. One of the gentlemen replied, paying me a nod. She would do nicely at court someday. Court? I inquired. Bria waved me off. That'll be her decision to make when she gets older. For now, I want you to omit mention of the court and of the king and queen. Let's cherish her art for what it is and not pressure her with future prospects. He commented pointedly. Despite this, I was already getting kind of excited. Court, king and queen. I had an inkling of what they were talking about. The tall woman too appeared to be impressed. Knowing that she was about to give praise, I looked at her expectantly. Why, she's perfectly adorable. A trill like a bird's. How can she go from such a cheerful warble to these sorrowful tones she treated us when presenting green sleeves is beyond me? You are a great teacher, Brio. Then again, I bet she's drawing from experience as well. Tell me, Toadlet, have you ever experienced heartbreak? Not melancholy, not gloomness, but true, genuine heartbreak. She leaned forward, a glint in her eyes. Brio frowned in confusion, eyes darting between her and myself. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to answer or not. The woman's stare made me nervous, though. I had to say something, and I had to break this alien silence. No, ma'am. She smiled that same icy smile. It widened when she turned to face Brio. Well, I think your student is a wonderfully talented young lady. With a little more training, she'll surpass you in no time. I believe she already has. Her voice is so youthful and lively. I watched my mentor's reaction closely. I might not have paid a comment like this any mind at all. It was an odd comparison, but a compliment nonetheless. Brio's face, however, changed to these words. When he met my gaze, his eyes had hardened. The pride within them had been replaced by something else. Something that frankly sent shivers down my spine. He didn't walk me home that night, like he usually did. He didn't come to pick me up the next day or the day after that. As a matter of fact, I never saw Mr. Vespers again. I was sick for weeks afterwards. I could barely eat and whatever meager contents my stomach did had left inside, I threw up. My belly simply hurt that much. I cried myself to sleep every night that followed, not just sobbing but full-on wailing. But that stopped when my big sister came to bang on my door, yelling at me to shut up and that I was keeping the entire house awake. Nobody noticed when I started skipping school. The only class that I ever showed up to was Mrs. Langtree's, my music teacher. 
She was the one who eventually caught on that something wasn't quite right with me. She sent me to the school counselor, who asked me whether all this acting up was a cry for attention. I said that it was, but not for hers. I ended up dropping out. Mrs. Langtree, however, introduced me to her musical theater group. They took me on and soon enough, acting and singing for them became my job. That was the one thing that I was grateful for, the one thing that went right. When I wasn't on stage with them, I ended up living with gigs and live music bars and pubs. I moved out of my parents' place and into a shared apartment. Life wasn't always comfortable, but it was good enough. I never meant to leave the woods behind now. I would still take the bus to the outskirts of town nearly every weekend to wander the forest in search of my old mentor. I called out for him. I even sang for him all by myself. The vines and branches still bent and stretched towards me though. Sometimes I heard his voice booming through the trees in the distance, but though I chased after it, I could never find its source. I refused to give up though. He had to be there and he had to come see me eventually. Our connection could impossibly have been erased entirely by his pride, right? That notion changed one night when I was home alone. I had visited the forest earlier that same day and was now wallowing in my disappointment once again. I had been fixing myself a snack in the kitchen when the sound of glass shattering had me whirl around. I was instantly on high alert, grabbing both my phone from the counter and a large kitchen knife just in case. The weather outside was frightful, so there was a possibility that a window had been somehow broken by the storm. I had a bad feeling about it though. The noise had come from my own bedroom, I was sure of it. I drew closer to the door with bated breath, my legs moving much slower than I wanted them to. My knees felt like jelly, and I was only being paranoid, I told myself. Pulse throbbing in my ears, I reached for the door handle. That same moment, the door flew open and a figure lunged at me, knocking me down. My head connected painfully with the hardwood floor and I let out a sharp scream. I found myself face to face with a young, watery-eyed man. Before I could make a sound, he had wrapped his fingers around my throat, hesitantly starting to apply pressure. Panicking, I started thrashing around, frantically trying to stab him with my knife but failing to land a hit. Stop struggling, please. The boy gritted out, struggling to keep his grip on my neck. Let go, I whimpered, horrified at feeling the strain of not being able to breathe in. I need air. I need... I'm sorry, he wailed. I have to do this. Please just stay still. Like heck I would. Gripped by wild and naked terror, I started kicking my legs, causing him to land on top of me. He made an attempt to get back up, but I ran my knee into that delicate soft spot between his legs. He cried out and I managed to roll him off me. Fueled by pure adrenaline, I scrambled into a crouching position and placed one foot on his stomach, mercilessly pressing down. Who are you and what do you think you're doing? I owe Brio Vespers. He yelled out grunting in pain. My face fell. You what? I asked breathlessly. I owe Brio Vespers. He repeated, squirming beneath me. He made me come here. He said that I had to get rid of you. He told you to kill me? I'm sorry, but I have a debt to pay. I don't care about your kind debts, I said. How my voice came out so steady, I'll never know. I felt like somebody had just stabbed me in the gut with a maypole. 
Did Brio watch me when I came to his woods? Every time. I took a deep breath. My head was spinning. Twisted by a ton of washed up pain, grief, and weirdly enough frustration. Please don't kill me. The boy begged in a brittle voice. I swear that I'm not a murderer, but I had to do what he said. He was forcing my hand. Is this something that you can control? If I let you get up, will you come at me again? I asked sharply. No, mistress, he whined. You have my word, mistress. I let go of a deep sigh, staggering to my feet and reaching up to massage my throbbing temples. Why does he want me dead? I asked. You've been singing in his woods. The trees were listening. They still know you. Brio's getting on in years, though he tries not to show it. It's not just that he's jealous, but he's scared of being replaced. He's scared that the trees want you now. And that warrants a death sentence. The boy looked at me like he didn't rightly know how to respond. I tell you what, I'll let you go if you do me a favor. He leaned forward, eyes wide. Go back to Brio, I said. Tell him if he wants me dead, he'd better come and get his soft hands dirty. Can you give him that message? Absolutely, anything else. Tell him that I don't want his woods. I would have never begun to compare myself to him. I was a kid and I loved him. I would have done anything to do him proud. If he wants to go on like Snow White's evil stepmother, he can be my guest. But I'll burn down the whole lot of those trees if he chooses war. As for me, I won't go back there. So he'd best just leave me alone. The boy blinked. Um, could you write that down for me? That's basically the note that we said our goodbyes on. I sent him off with a letter from Mr. Vespers and I haven't heard back since. I guess that's a good thing. It's been nearly three weeks since. I was about ready to forget about the whole thing. Lay the past to rest once and for all. But the band and I had a gig yesterday night at this huge open air event. It's still pretty warm out right now where I live and there were some other bigger names performing. So there was an enormous crowd. I could only see the people up front clearly. All the others melted into a mix of shapes and colors in the background. I was more focused on my singing anyways. I found that when I'm in front of a lot of people, they turn into a single entity in my eyes. I like this entity and I want to please it. But I don't take the time to concentrate on the individuals among it. And I didn't yesterday. Everything was fine and great until we had finished our last song and got ready to go off stage. And I cast another glance at all these people. And that was when I noticed that one of them stood out. He looked like he didn't belong. He looked like he would feel more at home in an opera house. Brio Vespers stood still as a statue between shouting, shoving, and moving people. He met my gaze despite the distance between us. It was a mere moment and I was frozen. Our bass player, noticing something was off, hastily came over to me and pulled me along with her. If it hadn't been for her, I probably would still be standing there just staring. Before he disappeared out of view, I caught one last glimpse of my old teacher. He raised his hands to clap. Despite my better judgment, I went for a visit to the woods this morning. Fog was still hanging in the air and the sun hadn't come out yet. I didn't venture in, merely staying by the forest edge with pricked ears. I could hear him. His voice was booming through the thicket. I had never realized how eerie it truly sounded.
This week's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by Dave. With the holidays around the corner, you might be wondering how you're going to be able to make ends meet and shower your loved ones with gifts. Especially if you're already really living paycheck to paycheck, or don't have as much money saved up as you would hope to. Dave can help you get out of a pinch so that you can enjoy the holiday season and spoil your family members and friends. I'm sure you're wondering, who is Dave? It's more like, what is Dave? Dave is the banking app that could help you get up to $500 instantly with extra cash. With Dave, there's no interest, late fees, or credit checks. How convenient is that? This allows you to have that extra money in advance, which makes it so much easier to purchase gifts for family members and friends, and help make the holiday season that much more special. And your regular hang-ups that you've been stressing out about, such as bills, groceries, or gas. You can finally tackle those thanks to Dave. Millions of people have already downloaded the Dave app to get the financial relief that they need with extra cash. So if you're in a pinch and need some extra help, download Dave and think of it as a helping hand from future you. Download the Dave app from the App Store right now or go to dave.com. Sign up for an extra cash account and get up to $500 instantly. For terms and conditions, go to dave.com slash illegal. Instant transfer fees apply. Banking provided by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. I was a volunteer park ranger when I heard the call of the cryptid. Written by Doomed Geek. I did not like myself. I knew that there were so many things more important about a person than their physical appearance, and that everyone did stupid things from time to time. But I was just not able to get over my hang-ups. My parents thought that sending me to work on a volunteer program in a national park would help me get my act into gear. I did not want to go, and I told them that straight off. I wanted to stop in my room with the curtains drawn and read horror novels. That was when I was the happiest. And then I saw my father crying in the kitchen. I was shocked. I had always thought of him as a strong man and definitely not the type to show his feelings. I asked my mother what was wrong, and she told me that he was really worried about me. He wanted to help me make something of my life. I mean, they both did. But I kept pushing them away and retreating further into myself. I could see her eyes were filling with tears as well when she told me this. I felt beyond lousy and after a sleepless night, I told them that I would go and work on the volunteer program and do my best. There was a family hug which made me feel a lot better and then I went to pack. Not long afterwards, I was on the bus. I lived in a suburb of London and the bus was soon on the motorway heading north. I had no idea why my parents could have not sent me somewhere closer to home. There was plenty of lovely countryside in the south of England, but they had chosen a national park in the northwest, past the scenic lake district, where a romance poet had written about daffodils and clouds, and on into a bleak landscape of hills, scarred with rocky outcrops. It was July and when I had left home, it had been a gorgeous day. But as the bus wound its way along the narrow roads that cut through the hills, 
It felt like I had not just left the motorway behind, but the summer as well. It was so cold. I shivered, retrieved my sweatshirt from my backpack and pulled it on and tried to focus on my book. It was the new paperback from one of my favorite authors. A blood-splattered road trip through a zombie-ravaged world, according to the blurb on the cover. And I had been planning on losing myself in its pages. But I had spent most of the time thinking about my situation at home, and the dawning realization that this trip was just the prelude to me moving on in life properly. Away to college or off to work. To be honest, this was a much more frightening prospect than any deranged brain eater could ever be. When the bus pulled up at the side of the road, I was feeling very down. I was so caught up in my thoughts that I didn't hear the bus driver the first time he called back that this was my stop. When he shouted out again, I felt the eyes of all the other passengers on me as I got my backpack from the overhead rack and walked along the aisle. My cheeks were burning as I watched the bus drive away. It had dropped me off in the middle of nowhere next to a large stone cottage. Apart from the building, there was not another sign of a civilization, just more of the empty hills stretching out as far as the eye could see. I was not even sure that the cottage had counted as civilization. Moss grew in patches over its walls. I could see cracks in its gutters and a good few of its roof tiles were missing. There were no lights visible through its window and no sign of movement inside. I would have been convinced that the driver had made a mistake and told me to get out at the wrong place. Only there was a sign in the door saying, Park Ranger. I double-checked the email instructions that had been sent by the organizers of the volunteer program and had said that I was to report to Hillhead Cottage, the park ranger's office, which sounded like the place that I was standing outside of. I peered into one of the windows. There was a laptop on a desk with a couple of maps spread out next to it. An empty cop sat in the middle of one of the maps. I hugged myself. I would have given anything for a hot drink at that moment in time. That and a helicopter ride out of here. I tapped on the window and shouted, Hello? And I did the same at the door. But I was met by silence both times. And then I noticed a small laminated note propped inside of another one of the windows. It said that the ranger was out and gave a number to call if you needed assistance. I took out my phone and I keyed in the number. My hands were shaking with a combination of the cold and frustration so this took an age. It was only when I pressed the call button that I saw that I had no reception. This was the absolute pits, I thought. And then it began to rain. This wasn't the gentle steady rain that sounded so calming in the background to ambient music. This was heavy freezing cold drops that hit me in the face. It stung my cheeks and got in my eyes. Within seconds, I was soaked to the skin. But thankfully, a few minutes after the rain began, it had stopped just as suddenly, and a hazy sun appeared. The rain was still dripping off me, but this was a definite improvement, until the cloud of flies had appeared. They were absolutely tiny, a little more than specks, but it felt like there were thousands of them and they were all around me. 
I accidentally swallowed a mouthful and I was standing there spluttering and waving my arms around uselessly when I heard the sound of a car engine approaching. A vehicle that had seen much better days drove into view. Its engine was spluttering worse than me as it came to a halt. A man wearing a green uniform got out, looked at me as the flies continued to buzz around me, and said, Ah, see you met the locals. And then he smiled and added, I'm the ranger, you're the new volunteer. I didn't want to risk opening my mouth, so I simply nodded. I'm sorry I wasn't here to meet you, he went on. I was heading back when I was flagged down by a couple of visitors to the park who were completely lost. It's easily done around here. Thankfully, the flies were starting to drift off. Still moving is one swirling cloud and I was able to reply. I am cold, wet, and have never been more miserable in my life. I would like to unvolunteer. He looked sympathetic. He wouldn't be the first. To be honest, the volunteer program is not very successful. The bus won't be back here until tomorrow. Until then, do you want to come into the office? I'll make up a fire and there's a pizza in the freezer. Shouldn't take too long to cook. Do you like pizza? My misery level is improving. I followed him inside. The building was surprisingly spacious and clean and with a log fire crackling in the hearth and the smell of pizza drifting from the oven, I decided that maybe things weren't so bad after all. The ranger had shown me the room that I would be sleeping in. It was a dorm with four bunk beds which I would have to myself, and that suited me just fine. There was no TV and my phone still had no signal, but I did have my book. There was a landline phone in the ranger's office. He suggested that I call my parents to let them know that I had arrived, but would be going back home tomorrow. And then he left me to check on the pizzas. As I looked into the address book on my phone so I could dial their number, I started to think of how they would feel when I told them that I had decided not to stay. They wouldn't get angry or shout at me or anything like that. They never had, and I knew they never would. But they would be disappointed, maybe feel sad, maybe feel hurt. As the call was answered by my mother, I made a decision. I told her that the journey had gone well and that the ranger was a nice guy and how I was looking forward to helping him and learning about what a park ranger did. I had decided to stay. After eating the pizza in record time, I went to bed. I managed to read two pages of my book before I fell asleep. I woke up feeling refreshed and enthusiastic to find out what a park ranger did. At home, I would only ever get out of bed before midday if I had to. As the ranger started his car and we set off to begin the task for the day, it was just after 8am. I was in uncharted territory. As he drove, the ranger explained that we would spend the morning repairing a footpath. That sounded great to me. After an hour of carrying and placing stones onto a footpath that never seemed to end, I was aching all over. I had always believed that exercise was for shallow people. That they never had been a problem before, but as I struggled on, I realized that being unfit was maybe not a badge of honor after all. About midday, when we had returned to the car and the ranger passed me a flask of a steaming hot soup and a stack of sandwiches, I found it difficult to unscrew the lid of the flask 
because my hands felt so weak. This afternoon will be a lot easier, the ranger said. I'm working with a university on a study of changing weather patterns and we placed a monitor at the highest point in the park. Now, if you want to finish your lunch and have a rest, I'll get back to the path. He left me drinking my soup and devouring my sandwiches. I felt guilty that he was doing all the work, but I was grateful as well. He had clearly seen that I was finding it hard at going and giving me a break. I appreciated his thoughtfulness. The weather was fine and I had a clear view out over the hills. Where the day before everything had seemed bleak, the landscape now struck me as striking. Compared to the identical housing estates and shopping centers of my hometown, it was almost otherworldly. Sitting there feeling full and warm and comfortable, I started to doze. I woke with a start as the engine coughed itself into life, and I rubbed my eyes and yawned as we set off. We wound our way up a steep path until we had made it to the top of a hill where a small box had been fixed to a pole. The ranger explained the details of how the device worked to me, but I must admit that I was too busy being impressed by the view. From our vantage point, I could see mile after mile of countryside. The park went from striking to stunning in my opinion. Once the ranger had finished entering readings into a notebook, we set off again. I was famished once more, but by now I hope we are heading back to the cottage. But the ranger had turned to me and said, I'm going to call in at one of the farmhouses that are situated in the park. There's a half dozen of these and most have been in the same families for generations. Longer actually than the park has been in existence. The farms are a vital part of the ecosystem of the park. He paused here and I could tell that he was thinking. After a moment he continued. And to be frank though, some of the farmers are a pain in the backside. I probably shouldn't say things like that but it's the truth. Well how come? I asked. I go and see each of them on a regular basis to discuss the work that I'm doing on the land, but all they ever seem to do is complain. The man that we're going to see today is particularly testy. He's convinced that there's a wild creature in the park and that I should spend all my time trying to catch it. At the words wild creature, a ripple of excitement passed through me. Like a wolf? I asked. The ranger shook his head. There are no wolves in the wild here. The farmer's creature is something a lot more fantastical. Have you heard of cryptids? I have, I told him. Well, he continued, I side with those who follow these scientific facts and say such things are not real, but I am afraid to say the farmer is letting his imagination run away with him, because he believes there is a bar guest roaming these hills. This is a local legend. Much as I loved my horror, I felt the same way about cryptids. I was intrigued all the same, especially because I had no idea what a bar guest was. My head was immediately full of questions, but we were now parking in front of a ramshackle building surrounded by rusty vehicle parts and tires lying on their side. The ranger climbed out and went to knock on the door. Three knocks later, the door swung slowly open. An old man who looked to be in an even worse state than the scattered junk poked his head out. He did not appear to be pleased to see the ranger and said in a gravelly voice, You're too late. You could have done something if you would listen to me, but now it's too late. 
I could tell that the ranger was making an effort to keep his tone reasonable when he replied. And now then, Nathaniel, what do you mean by that? The old man's voice rose in volume, and he looked to be shaking with anger. It was here last night, the creature. I could see it out of my window as I cowered inside in terror. It was lying in front of my door, and you know what that means. And with that, he slammed the door. The ranger sighed and came back to the car. His shoulders were slumped and he pulled his seatbelt back on. I had witnessed the whole thing from the passenger seat and said, He seems pretty upset. Yeah, the ranger replied, and that's not okay. I don't share his beliefs, but I want to help him. He sighed again and then sat up straighter and put a smile on his face. However, this is not something that you need to worry about. Let's get back to base and have some food. I'll be coming back later to check on the farmer and reassure him that everything is okay, but you can put your feet up. I said that that sounded good, but I was already thinking there was no way I was going to stay behind. All the talk of mysterious creatures had sent my imagination into overdrive. After burgers and fries, I persuaded the ranger to let me return with him to the farmhouse. As I stepped outside, I was hit by a rain-laced gale that I began to wish I hadn't, but I wasn't going to turn back. I had committed to something and I was going to see it through. This was who I was now. We set off with the windscreen wipers working overtime and the heater turned to full. As the ranger drove, I picked his brains on what exactly our bar guest was, and though it was clear he did not believe a word of it, his description of a large black dog with piercing red eyes sent a chill through me. When we once again pulled up outside the rundown farmhouse, I was tense and ready to see a monstrous hound lurking outside of the door. Dusk was falling and there were plenty of shadows but no dogs. I was kind of disappointed. The ranger told me to stay in the car and stepped out into the gloom. The rain had stopped by now but now before turning the ground muddy and the ranger left a trail of boot marks as he approached the door and knocked. There was a light showing through one of the windows, and when the farmer did not answer the door, the ranger moved around to the window and peered in. I could tell straight away that whatever he had seen was not good because he ran back to the door and began kicking at it, trying to force his way in. The door must have been in as bad a state as the rest of the farmhouse because the wood soon cracked and gave and the ranger disappeared inside. I wasn't sure if it was the right thing to do but I wanted to help so I jumped out of the car and hurried towards the open door but I paused halfway. I had seen paw prints in the mud and whatever had left them was big and heavy. I went nearer and held the outstretched palm of my hand over one of the paw prints. It was at least a third bigger than my hand. It was getting harder to see because of the encroaching darkness, but I could just about make out a half dozen or so more of the prints heading away from the farmhouse. I once again felt a cold chill. This was nothing to do with the temperature. It was a chill that seemed to be trickling through the marrow of my bones. I hugged myself and wondered if the new committed me was such an improvement after all. And then I heard movement behind me. I spun around and was relieved to see that it was the ranger. Relief that fell away immediately when I saw the serious expression on his face. Come on, he said. I'm going to drive you back to the cottage. 
What is it? I asked. What has happened? He paused before replying. It's the farmer, he eventually said. He's dead. The cold in my bones spread out into my blood and I began to shiver violently. How, how did he die? I asked. I don't know, the ranger answered. There are no obvious injuries, so before you ask, it wasn't any kind of wild creature, mythical or otherwise, which is almost a relief, almost. You see, the reason the farmer was saying that it was too late is that a part of the legend of the Burghast is that its appearance on the threshold of somebody's house is a sign that the person is about to die. He shivered as well, and then I saw him try to rally, for my sake, I guessed. And he added in a brighter sounding voice. But that's all nonsense, of course. Nathaniel was an old man and he lived alone. He smoked and drank and he was stressed out. It's very sad, but it shouldn't come as a surprise that he had passed away so suddenly like this. I forced an understanding and sympathetic smile and said, That makes sense. A part of me, though, was imagining a large black dog with red eyes padding away from the farmhouse and leaving its prints in the mud. I was about to tell the ranger about the paw prints when he said, Now let's get back. I need to phone the doctor so the proper authorities can start making arrangements. I was happy to get out of there, and we both headed back to the car. But as I did so, I saw something just beyond the farmhouse. A shape which was darker than the night and was staring at me with hideous red eyes. I wanted to shout out to warn the ranger, but I was paralyzed by fear. The ranger had no idea that there was anything wrong and he was climbing into the car. But he wasn't going to make it because the thing that I had seen was racing towards them. It was a dog but grotesquely large. Its fangs were bared and its eyes ablazed as it sped across the open ground and still all I could do was stand and watch, as it lapped at the ranger. He saw it, but far too late, and the dog had him clamped in between its teeth, and it was snarling and shaking him from side to side. He had seconds left before the dog killed him, and I knew it. I had to break free of my terror. I had to help him. I managed to take a few steps and I reached down and using both hands I managed to pick up one of the rusty pieces of metal and then I threw it as hard as I could at the dog. It struck the creature on its side. The dog flinched, its mouth opened and it dropped the ranger. He fell to the ground. Yeah, take that! I yelled and waved my fist in the air. The dog turned to face me, its eyes burnt into me. I swore, turned around and began to run. I had no idea what direction I was heading in, I just knew that I had to keep running. It was my only chance to survive. I wanted to look back to see how far away the dog was, but I did not dare. My fevered imagination filled in the blanks. I could see the dog moving with primal ease. It was ready to strike, ready to tear me to pieces. I didn't stand a chance. And my odds were cut to zero when I stumbled and fell. I tumbled over and a sharp pain ran through me as I jolted my elbow on the ground. I came to a halt and sat there gasping for breath. There was a small, fast-flowing river on one side of me, and on the other, the dog. It was standing a few feet away from me, watching me, 
Drool dripped from its fangs and in its red eyes, I could see a cold and brutal evil. I was easy prey. I always had been. And I knew those eyes would be the last thing that I would ever see. Until a voice cut through the night. Hey! My heart soared. It was the ranger and he was still alive. He was behind the dog and staggering towards us. The dog slowly turned its head and looked at him. It was clear that it saw him as no threat as well. I was amazed that he was even able to walk. He was covered in blood and I could see sickening raw wounds on his chest and arm below his torn clothing. Listen to me, he said. The legend says the bar guest can't cross a river. I couldn't see how such a powerful creature would be held at bay by such a simple thing as a river. But I had learned now that legends could be real. Go, the ranger yelled. I snapped out of my gaze, staggering backwards and into the water. I felt ice cold and the force of it almost knocked me off my feet. But I managed to keep my balance and long minutes later, I scrambled to the other side. I lay there struggling to breathe and looked up to see the dog was standing on the other side of the river. I was still fixed in its gaze, but it was holding back and moments later, it turned and padded away. I sobbed with relief. It's true, I called out to the ranger. It can't cross a river. I couldn't see him from where I was, but I was so grateful to him. He had saved my life. And then I heard a scream and a snarling sound. He had saved my life and sacrificed his own. I began to weep. I lay there for a long time, too devastated to move. But eventually, I managed to drag myself to my feet and began to walk blindly on. Just before dawn, I stumbled out onto a road, by dumb luck as much as anything else. And after a long, freezing cold wait, a car came into view. I flagged it down and told the driver that I wanted to go home. The day that followed passed in a swirl of doctors and police and social workers and my parents, who traveled up as soon as they were told what had happened. And a search party was sent to look for the ranger and to track down the dog. A week has passed since then and neither have yet to be found. I know as well that no one believes me about the bar guest. They all think that it's just an ordinary feral dog, driven to become a killer by hunger. But I believe. I believe in the legend. I have looked into its eyes and seen it viciously attack. And that night, I escaped it. As I stumbled alone and afraid across the bleak hills, I heard its howling call carried on the wind. A sound that will haunt me for the rest of my life. Today's episode is also sponsored by Sunday Scaries. Life is scary when you quit your job and literally nobody noticed. Life is scary when you wink at your crush as you pass by your desk only to realize that you have toilet paper stuck to your heel. Life is even scary when it's your first date and you really need to fart. Now we all deal with Sunday scaries, right? That oh crap, stressful, nervous, can't sleep, dread feelings that hit you on Sunday evenings when you think about work or school the next day, or life in general. Unfortunately, you can feel that same pit in your stomach any day of the week. 
Sunday scary CBD gummies were made to defeat the crap life throws at us. These are the perfect CBD gummies for professionals on the grind. Super moms, students, party animals, regretful drunk texters, and everything in between. Now me personally, I don't relax very well. I've never been someone who can just sit down and chill out. I always feel like I need to be doing something, whether that is work-wise or at home. It's just hard to shut off my brain and chill. While that can be positive in some ways, it also makes me overthink and stress myself out. Sunday Scaries are vitamin-boosted CBD gummies that actually work and they chill me out fast. Look, we all have the right to live scare-free. So whether you need to take the edge off, calm your racing mind, or sleep better, or just chill. Take two CBD gummies every day to keep the scaries away. Let me save you with my 25% discount. Visit sundayscaries.com and use my promo code MrCreeps for your discount. That's sundayscaries.com promo code MrCreeps for 25% off. Storms have a strange way of raising the dead. Written by Calness. 11.05 p.m. When it rains, it pours. The endless farmland where I live is dry as a bone until it isn't. And then storms roll through and everything breaks loose. Storms are big enough to wash away cattle. The kind where tornadoes rip at the earth like fingers of an angry god. Tonight, I am taking shelter in my dead husband's childhood home sitting by the chimney with my two-year-old son, what remains of a fire flickering in and out as wind funnels down the chimney. I hear my dead mother's voice in my head. She speaks in her classic, I told you so tone, undercutting the sound of a not-so-distant thunder. Should have stayed in the city like I told you, Tess. It's your own fault. You chose to run away with that crappy excuse for a husband. The old witch had always hated Johnny. I'm realizing that apparently, her ghost hates him just as much. Her ghost has no sympathy for the fact that I'm recently widowed, that Johnny got killed in a hit and run two days back. Now I have nobody else but John Jr. JJ has glasses, the coke bottle kind. He's farsighted. Up close, he's blind without them. JJ is a late bloomer. When we could afford it, he went to a gross motor specialist in the city. At a little over two, he can barely walk, though the glasses help. And he's sensitive. The kind of kid who, God willing, will grow up and make the world a better place because he actually gives a crap. But when you're so young that emotions run high and words fail you, sensitivity is its own sort of thunderstorm. Terrible two tantrums make supercell storms look like small potatoes. A supercell storm, six hours of severe weather, and we'll be here all night, maybe forever if the house collapses. I scrub the bad thoughts from my mind. I shush JJ telling him that it's okay, that mama's here to protect him. But doubt creeps back up, like water in a swollen river. Johnny and his family, they know how to weather storms. They were from here. Not me. I'm a city girl who got stuck in the country. And now I'm up to my eyes in trouble. 
from the chimney where JJ and I are sitting. It was the source of so many comforting nights together with Johnny's family before his mom and dad had died. When Johnny's brother finally landed in the state penitentiary for good, Johnny came home, me with him, to run the family business. We had huddled and knew the hearth on nights like these, tornadoes on their way, praying that we would never have to bother with the storm cellar out by the barn. And we never did. The hearth was sacred to Johnny's family. They had found comfort in it for as long as they had been here. But I should have left because it's Johnny's hearth, Johnny's family's chimney, Johnny's family's a crackling fire. Not mine. And now I'm stuck here with my mother's ghost, reminding me of my numerous shortcomings. Stupid, she says. You're a city girl, not a country bumpkin. Not a rube like Johnny and his good-for-nothing family. I search for words to argue with my mother's ghost, but I come up short. And then a powerful gust of wind comes down the chimney, and the fire goes out completely. Life recently, it's been defined by coming up short. Hirsch Hickson, the county sheriff, Old Bill Wallace, our neighbor from down the road. They told me to prepare for the storm on the horizon. They saw that our family had come up short, and they had wanted to help, but I didn't listen. Hirsch said that he would come for JJ and me if things got bad. I hope he doesn't. I can't have his death on my conscience, too. As my mother's ghost stares at me from near the chimney and the charred remains of a fire... The memory of everything that happened in the last few days threatens to send me to the brink. I look at JJ. He's not crying at the moment, but the storm isn't even halfway here. This is the first storm that I'll have to weather on my own. And truth be told, I'm scared out of my mind. I'm scared that I'll fail JJ and that both of us will die. I'll have had 28 decent years on this earth, a good run. But JJ doesn't deserve to die after two, punished for his mom's mistakes. Life can just be real like that. When it rains, it pours. 11.35pm. Close to midnight now. JJ whimpers. I shush him, telling him that it'll be okay and hating myself for lying. Thinking back, dang it, how many storm warnings were there? And I don't mean the kind on the Weather Channel. I mean the things that have happened recently. Portents of trouble coming down the road. Johnny getting called back home in the first place two years ago. We were living in the city above our means but happy. And then he was called back to take over the family business. That crap hole laundromat on Main. And when he left for his deployment all those years ago, he made a promise to himself that he would never come back. He knew that nothing good could come from being near his brother or the people that they had grown up with. But our finances were going down the tube, right along with Johnny's parents' health. So he came home. After a year his parents had died, the family business had continued to fail. And then almost a week back, ten dead at a pharmacy in a neighboring town. One oxycotton addicted robber, five shoppers, a sheriff's deputy and three people working in the back. 
the ones who had been held up for the drugs and the money. The shootout had been so violent that the papers had only included a small write-up about it. No pictures at all. The night of the robbery, Johnny came home white as a sheet. Karma. My mother's ghost says from her place near the fireplace. You're an idiot for ever believing that Johnny was more than a two-bit criminal. He got what he deserved getting hit by that. Shut up. JJ looks up at me, tears in his eyes. Oh, I wasn't talking to you, baby. I say to him, I... My assurances are cut off by JJ's sudden wail, more than matched by the screaming wind outside. Maybe my mom was right about Johnny, about him being nothing more than a criminal. Past his kindness, past his gentleness, there was severity. Johnny had served in Afghanistan. The military had turned him into a killer. His soul was scarred by what he saw over there. But was killing in his nature. His brother had been a thief, but not a killer. Was there something to it? Something dark running through Johnny's family. They had been revered in town. It didn't match up. His mom had been so. A bout of hail pounding on the roof could be heard. Golf ball size or bigger, it startled me from my thoughts. JJ's screaming intensifies. This time, it's Johnny's voice in my head, not my mother's. Remember what I taught you, Tess, he says. About survival, about fighting back, about storms. I remember one day last fall, almost a year ago, before things fell completely apart. No lessons about storms, just survival. Johnny taught me how to shoot. I hated guns, hated the way they looked, and hated the way that they smelled. But I saw trouble in Johnny's eyes and knew that if nothing else, taking the shooting lesson seriously would put him at ease. The trouble in his eyes. Had he known about some impending trouble that he hadn't told me about? Water and canned food in the cellar if you need it, Johnny says. Battery-powered radio and a flashlight in the kitchen. First aid kit under the sink. Formula for the baby. Screw formula. Johnny and I had been trying to wean JJ for months, but that was before Johnny had died and the storm showed up on my doorstep. If breastfeeding stops the crying, even for a second. Remember what I taught you about survival tests, Johnny repeats. The storm southern near the barn. It's your Alamo. If you can't get there, go to the bathtub. Not the one against the outside wall in our bedroom. I mean the one that butts up against the garage. Near JJ's nursery, the sound of another bout of hail cuts off Johnny's warning. My mother's voice again. Should have left, you stupid girl. Should have left and you had the chance. JJ's crying, the storm outside. My eardrums are on the verge of bleeding. Hail on the rooftop. Or is it someone pounding on the front door? 11.55 p.m. Five till midnight, five minutes until the witching hour, when devils come out to play. I open the front door to see who's pounding on it, and two strangers are standing on the stoop, their dark silhouettes outlined by bulbs of lightning popping in the distance. The sky is electric green, more hail is on the way. 
I can barely hear these strangers' words over the wind. Got stuck and need a little help. Lightning too close for comfort ignites their faces. Two men. Knowing that they're dead otherwise, I let them inside. One stumbles on his way through the door, catching himself against the opposite wall near the kitchen counter. The other pushes me and JJ back, closing the door behind him. He slides the deadbolt into place. The one who locked the front door stays near it. The other stumbles away from the wall and drops into Johnny's father's favorite recliner. Both of the men are soaked to the bone. Thank God for you, says the man. We were effed out there. I want to cover JJ's ears. Johnny and I let curses fly, but the words sound different coming out of this man's mouth. They sound like venom. Is he hungry? Asked the man in the recliner. He stares at my chest with emotionless eyes. I won't peek, I promise. I shake my head. Instead of feeding JJ, I ask a question that's been on my mind ever since they came through the front door. What were you doing out there? You could have died. The man behind me near the door clears his throat, but it's the man in the recliner who speaks. We're on a treasure hunt, he says. A what? A treasure hunt. He smiles at JJ. You like games, kiddo? I shield at JJ with my body. Was he mute or something? Asked the man. He's two years old, I say. He can't speak yet. The man laughs. And then he bends around me to look at the man by the door. God, Troy, I could speak by then, couldn't you? You might consider taking the boy to the city. See if you can't get him some help. I'm not fooled by him. There's something unsettling about this man. Something in his eyes. He's a wild card. He may as well have ridden in on a lightning bolt. His hair is messy from the wind, but I get the feeling that he looks that way even on a good day. This man is unstable, unsteady. In the few minutes that I've known him, I discern that this man is severely unwell. Hurry up, Carl, says the man near the door. His name is Troy. I turn to look at him, whereas Carl is wiry, rat-like, and crazed, like he had escaped a mental hospital. Troy is big and steady on his feet. He looks like a pillar of stone. His face is chiseled and he's six foot four at least. I run away from Troy's unfeeling gaze and back to Carl. In the time since I've taken my eyes off him, Carl has pulled out a pistol from under his jacket. It's laying on his lap, the barrel pointing in JJ's in my direction. I hear the voice of my dead mother from somewhere in the kitchen. Should have left you, stupid girl. Should have left when you had a chance. I hear Johnny's voice too. I wish I would have told you, Tess. I hear Carl's voice, but it's preceded by a deranged chuckle. Sorry about your husband, he says. I ain't too good behind the wheel. What did you do? I ask. Killed a sorry butt, says Carl. He took something that belonged to me. My worst fear is realized. The night that Johnny came home wet as a sheet, my suspicions were right. The pharmacy where ten people were butchered in cold blood, nine innocent, one guilty. 
Johnny was there. He was there because we were down on our luck. And he was rolling the dice, trusting people that he shouldn't have. People like his brother. Like the people he had grown up with. The ones that he swore to himself he would never be around again. But Johnny, I knew him. He wasn't evil just down on his luck. Maybe I didn't know him at all. I wish I would have told you, Tess. I heard Johnny say. We'll be on our way. Carl interrupts. Just give us the cash. JJ lets out another sob. His glasses are smudged with tears and snot. I shush him and tell him that everything will be okay. But I know they won't be. And on cue, the wind picks up outside. Twisters are on their way. The wind doesn't howl like that unless tornadoes are forming. I told you it's okay to feed him, says Carl. I promise I won't watch. Give that baby some milk. You and I can talk about what your dead husband stole from us. My stomach churns. I don't lower my shirt. Even though I want to. Even though I want JJ to know that mommy's here for him. But I do sit down, nudged forward by Troy. Carl notices that I tensed up at Troy's touch. Ah, don't worry, he says. Troy doesn't bite unless I tell him to. I remember something that I learned once, in a movie maybe. Criminals who plan to let you off don't say their names. Carl and Troy don't care that we know their names. Because JJ and I aren't leaving. Out of the corner of my eye through the windows, I see a series of flashes, followed closely by booming thunderclaps. The storm is with us now, another stranger making its way inside the house. Carl reaches forward and touches my breast with his slender, radish hand. Feed your baby, he says. We can hunker up all night if we need to. 12.25 a.m. I feed JJ as Carl watches. Troy tosses drawers in the kitchen, looking for whatever it is that Johnny took from them. Carl pulls a pack of marble reds out of his jacket and lights one up. He blows the smoke at JJ and me. JJ stirs. He's fallen asleep on my chest. I wish JJ was awake, that he could help me, that he could fend for himself. I don't know where the money that Carl and Troy wants is and I can't protect us. Surely not with JJ sleeping on my chest. The bathroom. Johnny's ghost says. I can hear his voice clearly over the wind. His ghost reaches out from behind the grave to remind me of lessons about survival. The pieces of the puzzle assemble themselves. I realize that Johnny was a criminal all along. The shooting lesson last fall. Other lessons that he had imparted throughout our marriage. He shared his soldier's knowledge in case something like this happened. So I could fight back if he wasn't there to protect me. The bathroom. Johnny says again. Back of the toilet tank. The gun. It's loaded just like I showed you. You should be in there anyway, Tess. It's too late to make it for the cellar. Johnny's voice blows away. My focus shifts. I see my dead mother standing behind Carl. She stares at me disapprovingly. Her skin is bloated, blue, waterlogged. 
just like it was on the night that I found her drowned in her favorite claw-footed bathtub, overdosed on benzos and booze. Oh, spare me your judgment, Tess, she says. You think I was weak. Take a look in the mirror. You were too stupid to leave, and you're too cowardly to fight back. These men are here to kill you and JJ, and there isn't a thing that you can do about it. Carl's crazed, piercing eyes break my concentration. It's like he's trying to read my mind. He follows my stare toward where I saw my dead mother's ghost standing behind him. Troy, he says, that picture frame on the wall. She looked right at it. Troy makes his way over from the kitchen. His foot falls like thunder. He removes the picture frame, revealing a discolored spot on the wall. He taps the wall with his gun barrel, searching for a stud but he doesn't find one, and then he punches through the drywall. He searched around in the cavity behind it. I pray that he doesn't find anything because if he does, JJ and I are dead. Nothing, says Troy. I see a flash of movement. A wave of Carl's cigarette reeking breath hits my face. He grabs JJ's arm and pulls it towards him. I hear JJ's elbow crack. Carl moves his smoldering marble near JJ's unblemished skin. JJ wails. I scream in terror. I'll kill this runt, says Carl. Mark my words. I'll give him a brand. Now tell me where the money is. Instead of putting the cigarette out on JJ, he grabs my arm and puts it out on me. The pain is extraordinary, focused, a strike of lightning on my flash. I grip my teeth, holding JJ. I can't pull free from Carl's grip. I can't move. So I grip my teeth until the cigarette goes out. Carl takes a deep breath. What's left of his frayed sanity returns for a moment. He drops the extinguished cigarette and runs his hands through his greasy hair, slicking it back. No one needs to die, he says. Dang it, we could all be eating canned beans right now, huddled up around a lantern telling ghost stories. No one needs to die. Outside, the wind howls. A fresh bout of hail hits the roof. I imagine tornadoes on that haunting electric horizon, and they're coming straight for us. No one needs to die, but if Carl and Troy don't start killing people, it's just a matter of time until the storm dies. The storm cellar by the barn may as well be a thousand miles away. The bathroom, I say. I'll show you. 12.45 a.m. I stand up to lead the way, but Carl stops me. We'll take that baby off your hands, he says. Gotta start picking up the pace here. Don't want you over-encumbered. He mispronounces the word. It fumbles awkwardly past his smoke-stained teeth. Troy rips JJ away from me before I can stop him. No, I beg, tears flooding out. Please. JJ cries bloody murder, but Troy holds him like a natural, like he's a father with children of his own. He shushes JJ, rocks him. JJ keeps crying, but the brutality of it subsides. I told ya, Carl says. Troy doesn't bite unless I tell him to. Troy stares at Carl with something resembling hatred. 
Dry bites who he wants, when he wants. He would bite Carl if biting was required. I would pay any amount of money to avoid being on the other end of his teeth. But I don't know where the money is. In the front yard, out of the corner of my eye, I see a bolt of lightning hit a tree. It explodes in flames. Ah, oh, screw me, yells Carl. Troy reaches out with his free hand and shoves me forward. I sprawl onto the floor. Splinters grind into my palms. Get the money now, Troy warns. I'm done waiting. I stand up, refusing to let myself look at JJ, knowing that I would crumble if I did. I make my way through the dark hallway, deeper into the house toward the bathroom, away from the safety of the hearth. Johnny's ghost comes with me, and so does my mother's. Should have left, you stupid girl, says my mom, violence spilling from her ice blue lips. Should have left when you had a chance. Eyes forward, Tess, says Johnny. Oh, spare me your judgment, my mother interrupts. You brought this on yourself. Everything you touch withers and dies. Eyes forward, Tess, Johnny repeats. Back of the toilet tank. We reach the bathroom this time. It's Carl who shoves me inside. Get the money, he says. I got a pack full of cigarettes looking for an ashtray. I go to the toilet tank and reach around the back. I hear JJ behind me whimpering in Troy's arms. I feel the weight of the gun in my hand. Hurry up! Carl starts, but then I spin toward him. At that precise moment, the hands of God descend. A tornado touches down somewhere nearby, and the house begins to shake. The foundation begins to collapse. Carl is distracted. I raise the gun and pull the trigger as the roof around us caves in. The force of the gunshot and the roof collapsing knocks me back. My head cracks on the toilet seat. Stars explode into my eyes. I look up. Carl is still standing in front of the collapsed wall separating us from JJ and Troy. There's a rose of blood blooming on Carl's gut. You son of a... He falls toward me as the house around us continues to give way. I am again, this time at Carl's forehead. But the second before I pull the trigger, he grabs the barrel of the gun. He wrenches it sideways and the shot goes wide. Like Johnny told me to, I climb into the bathtub as the crumbled bathroom presses down on us. The bathtub is filled with dirty water, backed up from old pipes. As I slip down its porcelain walls, I feel my mother's phantom hands reach up from beneath the water. Her rotten breath seeps into my pores. She guides me downward, hugging me close. There, there, Tess. Just before the bathroom collapses completely, Carl jumps into the tub on top of me. Fluid from his stomach seeps out. Cold, dirty water below. Hot, gutshot blood from on top. My mother's rotting breath below. Carl's sour cigarette reek from above. I'm stuck in the bathtub with Carl. The storm pounds away. But amidst the chaos, somewhere on the other side of the collapsed walls, I hear the sound of JJ crying. He's alive. Later. It's me and Carl's eyeless corpse in the bathtub. 
My mother's ghost is in there too. Guess I was wrong about you, she says. This time at least, but you're still. Shut up, I say. Don't you ever shut up. Bloated, blue, cowering in the rotten water. You're gone, mom, I say. And good riddance. The memory of her swirls down the drain, no longer relevant. Mercifully, finally, she's gone. Her constant threats are replaced by the sound of intensifying wind. The rubble of the house creaks like trees in a forest. I hear JJ crying again. I take a deep breath. And I begin crawling forward through one of the tunnels amidst the wreckage. Forging into the timber remains of the house. Later... Eyes forward, Tess. Johnny, Joe, Ja. The structure creaks with each gust of wind. The wooden plaster pressed into me, crushing out the air. The tunnel was small enough to begin with as the house settles and resettles. I'm crushed, but I keep fighting. Through the cracks between the rubble, I see lightning, hail. The storm, the real storm is coming, and I have to get out before it does. The tunnel is getting smaller, narrowing to a pinpoint. I've never felt this trapped. Johnny. Eyes forward, Tess. You and me now, babe. You and me and JJ. Crying. I can still hear it somewhere. Or is it just wishful thinking? Maybe Troy find the money. Maybe he. No, I can't think of that. Broken nails grind into me, shards of glass. A fissure opens up in my lower leg. Water rises through the foundation of the house too. The river at the back of the property has gone over its banks. I'm going to die the way that Carl did. The way my mother did. Unless I crawl faster. The nails continue grinding in, threshing my body. But ahead I see it. A break in the foundation. An open space on the other side. Ten feet. Ten agonizing feet. The vice of the house presses my lungs to the point of bursting, but I pull forward. A final series of cracks through my spine and I'm through. I fall into the house. And I hear JJ crying. It wasn't my imagination. I'm in the hallway outside of the bathroom. It's come down but the structure of the house had held and there's enough room for me to move forward. I ignore the agony in my body, and then I see Troy. He's sitting with JJ on the couch. Much of the house crumbled around them. The hearth is intact. Most of the room at the front of the house is. Johnny's ghost is standing near the fireplace. I see flashing through the front windows, through what's left of the front wall. But it's not lightning. It's red and blue. It's a sheriff's car. Hirsch Hickson's. Like he said he would. He's come for JJ and me. He's risked his life during the break in the storm to save us. When I look back to where Troy is sitting with JJ, I see that Troy is looking at me. In one hand, he holds a knife. It's gleaming tip inches from JJ's head. With his other hand, he holds a finger to his lips, warning me to be quiet. But the wind would drown out any warnings that I managed to give Hirsch regardless. 
Troy stands up and he leaves JJ on the couch. I crawl on hands and knees over to my son, pulling him close to me. He doesn't cry. He lets out a sigh of relief. Mama. I pull him close. Tess. Hirsch is yelling from outside. He's running towards what is left of our house. More twisters are on the way. Tess, are you in there? Troy stands to the side of the front door, which somehow is still upright. I shouldn't, but I do. I scream out to Hirsch, but he can't hear me over the wind. When he gets to the collapsed front wall, I look into his eyes, and he sees me and JJ. Relief washes over him. But Troy steps between him and me, a whole head taller than Hirsch. Hirsch looks up. I hold JJ close and I watch helplessly. Troy swings the knife up from his hip. Hirsch, despite his age, steps back, but the tip sweeps across his chest and blood fans out. Hirsch stumbles over the broken wall. Laying on the ground, he reaches for his gun. Troy's knife swings down again. Hirsch leaves his gun. He reaches up and stops the knife before it sinks into his chest. They're ten feet from JJ and me. Thunder rolls over the sound of their struggle for life. Run, Tess. Johnny's ghost, standing near us, watching helplessly as Hirsch does his best to fight from his back. Run. Hirsch, he's losing. Troy brings the knife down and it sinks in. I hear the whoosh of Hirsch's punctured lungs over the sound of the wind. And so I run. I pick up JJ and I run. I climb over the remains of the front wall, thinking only of the barn and the storm cellar near it. I look over my shoulder. Hirsch looks up. His eyes. He's pleading with me to go as well. Troy's knife rises and falls, rises and falls, sinking into Hirsch's chest and face. He sees me going. He leaves Hirsch, who's dead already, his blank eyes staring up at the furious sky. Twisters rip down from heaven around us. Hail pounds my face. I slog through the flooding yard. I'm carrying JJ. He's too heavy. The wind threatens to rip him from my grasp. I'm going at a slow jog, at best. Behind me, I feel Troy's massive presence. He grabs my shirt. JJ and I fall to the ground, and the knife whistles through the air an inch above my head. I look up into Troy's eyes. Anger, loss. The money is no longer the issue. He wants to skin me and JJ for what Johnny did to his brother. The storm seller says Johnny's ghost, the Alamo. I dodge another swing of the knife and I run for it. I run as fast as I can. Neighboring houses are obliterated. A barn explodes into a cloud of splinters. God's wrath descends on this wretched strip of land. But I feel JJ's warmth against me, and I fight onward. And I hear Troy yelling behind me, gaining on me. Losing his footing and spitting and cursing and swinging his meat cleaver of a knife. Twenty feet. The storm cellar. But the storm is holding me back. Fifteen feet. Nothing but a wasteland in every direction. Fingertips. Not the storms this time, but Troy's. 
He grabs my shirt again this time and tears away. It's sucked upward into the clouds. The storm is so close that it could swallow us. I jump for the double doors of the storm cellar. I grab the handle with my free hand. Troy lands behind me and grabbing my foot, pulling. Raising the door an inch, the updraft winds finish the job, ripping the door away. I push JJ into the cellar and he falls into the darkness. I sink my hand into the concrete. My nails split from their beds. I look back at Troy and to aim for his face, and I kick as hard as I can. His jaw breaks as my foot connects. He lets go. There's a stunned look on his face, but only for a moment. A piece of a destroyed combine collides with him, cutting his body in half. The storm finishes the job, pulling each part of him upward, 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 and swallowing him whole. My feet raise from the ground. I pull harder, crushing the concrete with my fingertips. I fall into the cellar and crawl forward on my hands and knees into the darkness as lightning glows in the opening to the cellar. Morning. Tess. I recognize the voice. Tess. It's Bill Wallace, our neighbor from down the road. Here. It's all that I can muster. Bill appears in the frame of the cellar. Oh, thank God. He comes down and helps me sit up. The house is gone, he says. I, I thought you and JJ... JJ, I look frantically for him and then I see him. He's sitting on the floor rolling a few cans back and forth, playing by himself in the aftermath. Somehow his Coke bottle glasses are still on. Now let me help you get out of here, says Bill. Helps on the way. He helps us out of the cellar. Everything as far as I can see is a wasteland. There's nothing left. The worst one that I've ever seen. Bill says. Hirsch. He raises a hand to his mouth. Your body, Tess. Oh, good God. And when I look down, pain rushes in. I'm covered in wounds from the previous night. Hirsch came for you, says Bill. Me. He, he's dead, I said. So are the men who came here last night to hurt us. The men who came to hurt you. Strangers, I say. They showed up in the middle of the storm. They tried to kill us. But I don't say anything about why they came. I don't want to tarnish Johnny's memory. I need more time to process it myself. Tears form in Bill's eyes. He wipes them away and helps us over to what's left of the house. Nothing much except for the chimney and the hearth. Bill leads us to the front of the house. Listen, he says. Tess, I hate to do this, but I got a mark of the houses. You're safe. I don't know about the others. Go, Bill, I say. We'll be here. We're fine. He nods. Help's on the way, he reminds me. And then he leaves, navigating around the wreckage in his truck. JJ is asleep on my hip, drawn forward like a moth to a candle flame. I walk around the hearth in the chimney. The source of refuge in so many other storms. We have nothing left. Maybe our refuge lies in it now. And then it dawns on me. The chimney and the hearth. The place where we had taken refuge so many times. 
the thing Johnny's family treated like a sacred shrine. I walked past the broken front wall of the house past the memory of Hirsch struggling for his life. His body is gone, swept away by the wind just like Troy's. I make my way over to the hearth. I look for clues about what the men came for. I feel inside of the chimney, but then I realize any money hidden there would have been incinerated by the fireplace. And then I notice it. A brick on the facade of the hearth, slightly out of place. JJ is falling asleep on my shoulder. Holding him so as to not wake him, I reach for the brick, and I remove it. Deep on the other side is a large Ziploc bag, bound into a bundle of rubber bands. I take them off. The bag is filled with laundry tickets. Laundry tickets from the laundromat, the family business. Dozens of them. Near the front, I see one dated three days back. The day before Johnny was killed by Carl and Troy. Thompson's laundromat. Ticket number 00235. Every laundry ticket is blank. The only thing on them is the number. I had seen Johnny's mom use the machine before. She punched in a number in the conveyor belt brought the garments forward. If the laundromat is still standing, what would I find when I punched in the numbers? Carl and Troy had wanted it bad enough that they had come to our house in the middle of a storm. Something, maybe something that could help us start over. A new life for JJ and I. The memory of Hirsch. The memory of Johnny before everything fell apart. There's a piece in me that wants to leave and never look back. But for the first time in a long time, I feel hope. When it rains, it pours. Amidst the hundreds of tickets in the Ziploc bag, I sense possibility. For the first time, in as long as I can remember, I see a break in the clouds. There is something wrong with Exit 181. Written by Former Trenchcoat. I had always liked driving alone at night. It gave me time to think or to not think if I so choose. Because of my love for driving, the midnight trip home was one of my favorite parts about going to see my family. The drive was about an hour long, which was long enough for me to unwind, but short enough to not feel exhausting. Call me old-fashioned, but I really enjoyed listening to the radio while I drove as well. I would tune into whatever local station happened to be playing, as I zoned out while watching the reflective yellow lines on the road pass rapidly by me. There often weren't but a handful of cars traveling along the stretch of highway so late into the night, and this gave me a sense of solitude. But I liked it. It was a meditative in a way. One night when I was returning home from another visit with the family, I was enjoying the trip the same as I always had. The skies were almost completely darkened with just a thin sliver of moon and scattered stars peeking through the black. The radio was playing some old jazz song, and there wasn't a single soul sharing the road with me. It was peaceful. But just as I was sighing in contentment, the smooth and calming sounds of the jazz radio abruptly cut off into a roaring static. 
Oh, crap. I hissed to myself as my hand quickly shot to the radio to turn it down. I now sighed in frustration, annoyed that my peace had been broken so suddenly. After messing with the dial for a moment and failing to get the radio signal back, I decided to pull out my phone and try to connect it to my car's speakers so that I would still have something to listen to. But after rummaging through my jacket pocket in search of the device, I at last pulled it out only to find that the battery had died. I had a bad habit of not keeping things charged and now it was biting me in the butt. Welp, I guess I'm screwed if I get into a wreck. I jabbed at myself, irritated that I hadn't thought to charge it at my family's place. With little of the choice, I accepted that the remainder of my trip would be without music to keep my company. After a few minutes, I became curious as to exactly how much of a drive was left. I checked the clock to see that it read at 12.34. Remembering leaving my parents' house just a bit after midnight, I concluded that there was roughly a half an hour left before I had arrived home. Sighing deeply in frustration again, I resigned myself to focus on the road ahead of me. The painted yellow lines of the road crawled quickly into the view of my headlights and underneath the hood of my car. I watched them carefully for a while, my mind struggling to remain focused. When finally lifting my gaze back up to the road, an old feeling of anxiety came over me. Maybe it was just the lack of music to occupy my thoughts, but I couldn't help but feel like the darkness that engulfed my vehicle was a little too thick. I wasn't able to make out any of the usual trees or landscape that surrounded the highway, nor could I see the stars in the sky. I thought back to when I had first started my journey home and distinctly remembered admiring the pinpricks of light when I first got onto the highway, but I didn't recall seeing any clouds or oncoming storms that would otherwise block them from view now. The feeling gnawed at my psyche for a bit but I shook it off as best as possible. I told myself there was nothing to worry about. Soon, I would arrive at my exit and not long after that, I would be home. And checking the time again, I furled my brown confusion. The clock still read at 12.34. That was strange. I knew that it had been at least a few minutes since I had last checked. Oh great, I said to myself. Guess the clock is broken. Still, I didn't think much of this at the time, knowing that I probably only had about 10 minutes or so left on the highway before my exit. I decided that I would worry about recalibrating the clock when I got home. With no other choice, I continued driving like nothing was wrong, ignoring the creeping feeling that was slowly working its way up my spine. More time passed and I found myself glancing toward the edge of the road for a sign. I didn't normally pay much attention to the exits prior to my own, but I couldn't remember even seeing a single exit sign for quite a while. Still, I kept onward, trying to convince myself that I was just tired and I was misjudging the amount of time that had gone by. And finally, after what felt like well over half an hour, I saw a sign approaching in the distance. As I got closer, I could see that it was a large green sign that read, Exit 181, one mile. 
I sighed in relief, knowing that meant that I was almost at my exit. Exit 182. Just a couple more miles and I would be nearly home. After a minute or so, another sign came into view with a road that spanned right off of the highway. Exit 181, next right, it read. I passed by it unthinking. My leg beginning to shake as the anxiety that had been chewing at the edges of my mind became harder to ignore. And then a moment later, another sign approached from a distance. A little reassured, I slowed down a bit in preparation to get off the highway. But as I got close enough to read the sign, I found myself feeling confused rather than relieved. The sign read, Exit 181, One Mile. Speeding past the sign, my sense of anxiety began morphing into one of dread. I could have sworn that I already passed exit 181, so how was it possible that I had passed it again? Before my panic could rise to a peak, I steeled myself and decided that I must have just misread the previous sign. So this time when I passed the sign reading exit 181 next right, I made sure to read the number carefully so that I was certain it was 181. And it was indeed, I was sure of it. So, as the next identical green sign came into view only a moment later, the words, What the heck? escaped my lips in the form of a scared whimper. I slammed on my brakes, my tires making an obnoxious screech against the road as they burned rubber. Sitting there in the middle of the highway, I stared up at the sign for what I was certain by now was the third time. The metal shook slightly from the wind as it towered over me, returning my confused phrase with words of its own. Exit 181, one mile. I did nothing for a moment but sit and read those words over and over and over in a pale attempt to register them. But with nothing else to do, I slowly pressed in the gas and continued driving forward. My leg now shook rapidly with anxiety as I tried to steady my breathing. The words, exit 181, echoed through my mind as I approached the exit yet again. And as the road that broke from the highway passed me by once more, I found myself on the verge of a panic attack. By now I knew for a fact that I had passed this exit more than once. Surely I wasn't losing my mind, was I? In the end, it didn't make much of a difference. I was on the middle of the highway at night with a dead cell phone. What else could I do but keep driving? And so that's what I did. And all the while, fear pressed on my chest like an increasing collection of stones. Just as the anxiety was beginning to suffocate me, static suddenly erupted from the radio, filling the inside of my car with a loud squeal. Now, oh, what the heck? I yelled at my hand and instinctively reached for the volume dial again. But just as I touched it, the static of the radio was replaced with a voice. I listened for a few seconds as the gargled speech became more clear. Thank you, listener, for joining us on this beautiful evening. Were the first words that I could make out. I listened on. If you're just joining us, we've got a great collection of classics coming up. But first, a word from our sponsors. Bizcar is a beautiful place filled with beautiful people. I don't think there's a place on earth more lovely. If you're looking for a great old-fashioned community with the like-minded folk, come on down and visit us sometime here in Bizcar. 
It sounded like the radio was trying to sell some kind of tourist attraction or town, but each time the name was said, a static burst through the speakers. The radio DJ continued, Just take exit 181 and join our community. Now back to the music. As if on cue, a familiar sign came into view. No, no, no. I yelled in frustration as the words etched upon it were these same ones echoed on the radio. Exit 181, one mile. What the heck is going on? I yelled, slamming my hands into the steering wheel in anger and panic. Now the radio wants me to take this exit. Well, no way. Where is my exit? Where is exit 182? I screamed at the radio, half expecting a response. But only static buzzed in response to my angry questioning. Becoming frantic, I pressed on on the gas pedal accelerating well beyond the speed limit as I stared daggers at exit 181 when passing by it again. I looked out at the endless stretch of blackness that lay beyond my headlights, grinding my teeth as I did so. No matter how I tried to rationalize the situation, it all seemed impossible. I had never experienced any sort of psychotic break before, but it was the only reasonable explanation. As I tried to keep my heart rate under control, a loud buzzing screamed through the speakers in my car, and I once more heard the radio's DJ voice blare throughout my four-wheeled prison. Unlike the cheery persona from before, however, the tone of his voice had a darkness to it. Gone was the cheerful and inviting persona that invited me to his home, and in its place was something that I could only describe as malevolent. He didn't say anything directly violent, but I could feel the thread at the end of each word as it hissed through the speakers. You wanna come to K? It's the happiest place in the world. The sun is always shining and the people are always smiling. So make the right choice. Take exit 181. His last words were slow and deliberate. Resembling more of a demand than a request, and I couldn't shake the feeling that he was talking to me directly. A chill ran up my spine at the thought. But that couldn't be possible, could it? Then again, how was any of this possible? I had been driving on the same span of highway for hours by now and passed the same exit multiple times. And now, now the radio was talking to me, telling me to make the only choice that I seemed to have. But I got the feeling that this town I was being coerced to visit wasn't as friendly as the DJ made it sound. I wasn't sure if it was a mental break or not, but whatever was going on, I knew that I wasn't going to take exit 181. When I went by the sign signifying that it was one mile away again, I didn't bother looking at it. Instead, I just pushed on the gas more. As the exit itself grew nearer once again, the radio crackled to life once more. But before it had the chance to say anything, I muted it, speeding past 181 like a bat straight out of it. A mix of defiance and bravery came over me, but that courage was deflated as soon as the radio somehow cranked itself back up, and a familiar voice broke through again. You think that you can just ignore me? The radio DJ spat angrily with a startling intensity. You can't keep driving forever, so just take the exit. It's your only way out, and you know it. So do it. 
Turn right at exit 181. Take the exit. Take the frickin' exit. Do it. Take it. Take exit 181. Take the- I cut off the screaming voice of the DJ as I tore the radio from its console, throwing it on the floor of the passenger side, all while returning the screaming with some of my own. What the heck? What the heck? Is all that I could choke out with my new hoarse vocal cords. I began hyperventilating as I practically pushed my gas pedal through the floor. My car was moving so fast at this point that I had trouble maintaining control of the wheel, but I didn't care. I hoped, prayed even that, if I just drove fast enough, I would eventually reach exit 182, or even 183. I didn't care what it was as long as it wasn't exit 181. But despite my dangerously insane speed, nothing changed. I flew by the abhorrent exit over and over again so many times that I had lost count. The radio DJ was right. I couldn't go forever. While I still had a decent amount of fuel, I was completely aware, even in my panic, that eventually it would run out. That being said, it felt like there was little else that I could do. So I just drove on, beating my steering wheel in a frenzied state, as the hopelessness of my situation slowly wrapped its gnarled appendages around my psyche. It was when only a shred of my mind remained that my peripheral vision caught something in my rearview mirror, pulling me back to reality. Lights flashing red and blue. It was a police car. Crap, I said, immediately taking my foot off the gas and doing my best to brake from the outrageously high velocity that I'd been traveling. For a moment, a new panic rose in my chest. But then I realized, wait, a cop, another person. I knew that I might be facing a harsh punishment for criminal speeding but at least I had another human on this dang road with me at long last. By the time that I had slowed to a reasonable speed, the car had already caught up with me. Putting on my hazards, I pulled off to the edge of the road and tried to think of how I would explain all of this to the officer. They pulled up behind me, the reflection of their bright lights nearly blinding me as they parked uncomfortably close to my own vehicle. A few seconds later, a door slammed and the crunch of dirt underneath the boots echoed ominously as the officer approached my window. The form outside my car was tall, so much so that I couldn't see its head while it was standing so close to my vehicle. I sat staring vacantly for a moment, wondering if it was safe before they began tapping on my window to get my attention. And quickly snapping back to reality, I rolled it down so that I could speak to them and the deep voice of a man broke through the chilly night air. Ma'am, do you have any idea how fast you were going? The officer asked in an intimidating tone. I swallowed tears and did my best to respond. Officer, I'm sorry, but something really weird is happening. I began but was cut off. License and registration, please, he said sternly. I began going through the glove compartment in search of the requested documents, but continued trying to explain myself as I did. Yes, sir, but please, you have to listen to me. I've been stuck on this stretch of highway for hours, I said, trying not to sound too exasperated. Going that speed, lady, you'd better explain yourself. He responded incredulously. No, you don't understand, I tried to reason. 
I keep passing the same exit over and over and over again. Man, what the heck are you talking about? Have you been drinking tonight? He asked accusingly. No, I've been stuck in some sort of lube, driving by the same exit repeatedly. I can't get to my exit. It's like something is trying to keep me from my exit. Ah, uh, sure. What exit did you say that you've been trying to get to? He asked in an almost mocking tone. Exit 182, I replied. Exit 182, he asked. Well, that's your problem, ma'am. You're going to the wrong place. I stopped, looking back at his gaunt, towering form in confusion. What do you mean? I asked, paranoia beginning to choke me once more. He slowly bent down, his impossibly tall form collapsing like a skyscraper as he brought his face level to the window to meet my petrified gaze. I let out an involuntary gasp as what I previously thought to be a man stared into me with a rabid expression. The thing's features were awful. It was like some animal that ripped the flesh from a human male and adorned their face like a cheap Halloween costume. The skin stretched and warped in horrible ways around the bony, bulbous structure beneath it. Its eyes were too big for the holes of the mask and the sockets tore and contorted around the bulging, sickly yellow sclera. But worst of all were its teeth. Large and jagged like that of an anglerfish, they shredded through the meat that surrounded the false lips of the thing, causing the pink flesh to smack together grotesquely as the twisted, mangled thing pretending to be a human, spoke once more. There's only one place to go, ma'am. Exit 181. A scream of abject terror escaped my lips as the engine of my car simultaneously screeched to life. I pulled away from the monstrosity as fast as I could, my foot putting the pedal to the metal and leaving a cloud of dust in my wake. Oh crap, holy crap, w what was that? I yelled in a panic pounding the steering wheel hard with my fist as each word scratched its way painfully out of my throat. My vehicle roared down the black stretch of highway at over a hundred miles per hour. Its dated engine sputtered and shook, rattling the frame of the car violently. I had just started to let up in the gas when something caught my eye in the rearview mirror again. The red and blue lights were back and quickly catching up to me. I began hyperventilating as the realization hit me. That imposture was chasing me and it wouldn't be long before it caught up with my old junker of a vehicle. Immediately, I pressed my foot hard against the gas pedal again, like I was trying to push it through the floor. I watched as the speedometer crept back to over a hundred at a torturously slow rate. My heart pounded in my chest as I looked back in the mirror to see the lights getting closer. Dang it, go faster, you piece of crap. I screamed at my car. The engine began to rattle again, but I didn't care. My foot remained planted on the gas even as the steering wheel became difficult to control. As I desperately tried to increase the distance between myself and the false officer, I glanced frantically at each road sign as I accelerated past them. Exit 181, one mile. Exit 181, next right. Exit 181. I just kept going on and on. And each time I read those words, my anxiety rose higher and higher until I wanted to scream. No matter how many times I passed the signs, the words upon them remained the same.
Exit 181, one mile. Exit 181, next right. The red and blue lights were so close now that they began to illuminate the inside of my car and I could hear the sirens wailing at near deafening levels just behind me. No sooner than I realized this, the radio erupted in harsh static, which nearly made me lose my grip on the wheel. The thing wasn't even hooked up anymore, yet somehow the furious voice of the DJ crackled through my car at a volume that threatened to blow my speakers and began screaming expletives at me. You disappointment. Take the exit. Take the exit now. You're nothing but a disgusting shell. You'll never be anything. So take the exit. Take exit 181. Take the freaking exit. The howling insults continued and I screamed in agony and confusion in response, matching the volume of both the radio and sirens in a crescendo of madness. Suddenly, my cries caught in my throat as the red and blue police lights became visible in my side mirror. With horror, my head twisted at nearly bone-snapping speed to see the imposter's car was now tearing down the road in the left lane, its front tires even with my own. I gazed with a silent scream at the abomination that sat behind the wheel as it returned my petrified expression with a twisted, sinister smile. And then, with no other warnings, he twisted his wheel causing the police car to slam into the side of mine. My tires screeched against the road as I struggled to maintain control over my car. Meanwhile, the radio continued violently berating me. Take the exit now. Take it or die. You waste of space. In the chaos, I desperately tried to focus my attention back on the road in front of us, only to see the same words that I had read a hundred times, reflecting the glow of my headlights. I took in a long, deep breath and turned to face the skin-wearing monster in the neighboring lane again. Tears fell hotly down my cheeks as my gaze pleaded with me, the creature still smiling through the torn flesh of its human mask, nodding slowly and expectantly at me. It knew as well as I did that there was only one way for this to go. Removing my foot from the gas, I began to slow down and so too did the imposter officer. I returned my attention back to the endless road that stretched on in front of me. The abyss that surrounded my headlights remained as thick as ever, as the small dim reflection of green became slowly visible in the distance. Tears and snot continued to fall from my face as I prepared myself for whatever Exit 81 had in store for me. I didn't understand what this was, but it was obvious to me at this point that no matter how long I drove forward, there was only Exit 181 awaiting me. Wait a second, I said to myself as a thought occurred to me. I looked around my vehicle to observe my surroundings more deeply. All that lay in front of me was the same stretch of road, but I couldn't actually see anything but the same black fog that sat at the side of the highway until my headlights illuminated the space. Was it possible that I wasn't just driving through some abyss? Maybe this was still like any other highway. And if it was, that meant there were two directions that could be taken. As soon as the ID came to me, I kicked myself for the stupidity of it. Nothing about this situation made any sense, so there was a much better chance that I was wrong, and that if my tires left the road, I would simply fall into the void that lay beyond them. Still, the more that I considered my options, the less the alternative sounded preferable. If it was between spending my life with abominations like the one in the police car, and simply floating in the void until starvation took me, 
it wasn't a difficult choice. I wasn't going to do what these monsters wanted. I wasn't going to do what the signs wanted. If I was going out, I decided that it would be on my own terms. Looking at the sign as it grew nearer, I furrowed my brow in resolve. Exit 181 was approaching me again, but this would be the last time that I would read those dang words. I made sure to keep up the act and began slowing my vehicle more, even throwing my turn signal on as the abhorrent exit grew closer. Taking in a deep breath once more to steady myself, I glared back at the imposter, its vehicle still keeping pace with my own. Its expression not less menacing but still horrifying, nodded at me once more. And then as the exit approached for the final time, I slammed on my brakes without warning. The smell of burning rubber filled my nostrils as the seatbelt dug sharply into my collarbone. The police car tried to react to my drastic shift in speed, but it was obvious that the creature driving it was caught off guard. As a result, its vehicle sputtered and twisted in its front end to the right, toward exit 181, as it too came to a screeching halt. My car, however, twisted in the opposite direction. As I poured every ounce of my strength into jerking the wheel to the left, the imposter attempted to maneuver its fake police car to compensate for my abrupt change in direction, but it was too late. As soon as my steering wheel had stopped turning, I floored the gas pedal. The engine of my old car roared and its tires once again cried against the asphalt beneath me. I took one last look at the sign poking through the abyss in my rearview mirror, and then my car tore me away from it and toward the empty blackness on the other side of the road. I closed my eyes and prepared myself for the feeling of falling off the sheer cliff that I had expected, but instead my car began rattling as it took on rough terrain. My eyes shot open in surprise as I realized that I was now driving on the rocky, gravel median that sat between the two opposing directions of highway. I gripped the wheel hard, bracing from the bumpy earth below. After just a few seconds, more asphalt became illuminated in my headlights, and I twisted my wheel to the left as my tires bumped back onto the road. Without thinking, I immediately floored the gas again, now racing down the highway in the opposite direction of where I had left the false police officer. The radio crackled with more expletives for a moment. Where do you think you're going? Get back here, come back. And then suddenly it cut off, leaving a heavy silence in its wake. I looked back in my rearview mirror expecting to see the sirens chasing me, but there was nothing but an empty stretch of road behind me. As I searched my surroundings for any sign of the imposter, I slowly began to recognize them. Gone was the empty darkness that had previously swallowed what lay beyond the edges of the road. In its wake were trees, a grass, and distant mountains. Turning my gaze to the sky, I saw the sliver of moon hanging in its center, surrounded by stars which dimly illuminated the landscape around me. Confused and still on edge, I let out a shaky breath. But only a moment later, a familiar sign could be seen coming up in the distance. My heart rate immediately shot into my throat as I approached it, feeling on the verge of another panic attack. Despite my returning fear, I dared to read the words painted upon the metallic green plate. Exit 182, one mile. My eyes walled up with relief. Somehow, some way, I was free. 
I had escaped whatever nightmare loop that I had been stuck in for hours. When the exit approached, exit 182 I mean, I hesitated for just a second. Being out of energy and nearly out of gas, however, I made the decision to take it. To my great relief, every road from then on out was completely normal. And only a few minutes after exiting the highway, I found myself sitting in front of my home. It was weeks before I got behind the wheel after that. I even made some excuse with my job so that they would let me telework for a while. It wasn't until a few months later that I finally stuck up the courage to go and visit my family again. And when I did, I took the long way to get there in order to avoid the highway. And now I make sure to always drive back home before dark. In fact, I never drive on that stretch of highway anymore, or at night when I can help it. I've since developed an anxiety disorder related to driving. My therapist and medication helped me cope, but I still hate driving with every ounce of my being. I don't think that I'll ever truly understand what happened to me, and I don't think that I want to. All I know is that I'll never take that stretch of highway again, and no matter where I go, I'll never take exit 181. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.